I'm Jesse. And I'm Josh. And this is Slice by Slice, a podcast where we dissect and discuss horror films by categories and subgenres, such as snuff films, pagan deities, franchises, and directors' bodies of work. And of course, we can't dissect and discuss these films in the detail we do without spoilers. Wait a second, did you say snuff films? And welcome to episode 45 of the Slice by Slice podcast. Today, July 21st, 2020, we're covering the Sinister franchise. So yes, Josh, there will be snuff films. Okay, okay, just making sure I'm on the right podcast. (laughs) (laughs) We are not directly covering snuff films. We're just covering horror films that cover snuff films. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, that is not growth. (laughs) If you're a new listener, (laughs) please understand this is just comedy. We're not going back to early 1996 internet here. Oh. (laughs) But before we dive into movies, let's go over a bit of news. The first bit of news I want to cover is a new slasher movie coming out that is directed, produced, and starring Jay Baruchel, which I think he's really funny when I see him in like Seth Rogen movies and shit, but I had no clue that he was in a horror films, but it's called Random Acts of Violence. But basically his buddy is a comic creator who writes this comic series called Slasher Man, and it's a slasher. And and this group of friends go on a road trip on a car and basically the somebody is dressed as the slasher from his comic book and murdering people around them and attacking them. And every time they go to the police, the police are like, well, this is right here in your comic book, aren't are you sure you're not doing this? You sick fuck like that kind of shit. And it's a really cool idea. I think so I think that'd be really neat to see. Yeah, that's different. Well, I like to see people that I, I like in other walks of life doing horror films also, because the guy's funny as hell in comedy movies. So we'll just have to see how this goes. This is funny. Motel hell and pumpkin head are coming out in scream factory steelbooks with 4k scans on October 13th and 20th. Ooh. Respectfully. Which I think is hilarious because this was going to be the Pumpkinhead episode originally. It was. That'd be pretty cool to see the original Pumpkinhead with a 4K scan. The elephant in the room, if we're going to talk about Scream Factory, is the entire full Friday the 13th full collection being released on October 13th. Because all of the movies haven't been released together in one box set in forever. Yep, that means I'm going to have to buy them again. Or ever. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Going to have to buy that. Yeah. They did those like you could buy two separate ones and get a few movies on each disc at, at uh, like Walmart and shit. But no, that's uh, yeah, got to buy it again. Great. <laughs> New Line Cinema and Paramount got their heads out of their asses and decided to make this box set. And honestly, this is the first time, right? As far as I know. Yes. So, I mean, I'm not a huge Jason fan, but. This is fucking awesome to be able to get them in one box set. And honestly, with the ongoing legal battle, might be the only time. Yeah, yeah. As of writing this episode, Scream Factory had already sold out of pre-orders, but you could still pre-order on Amazon. So, okay. No affiliate link or anything, but, you know, there you go. <laughs> Hope I don't have to go to eBay. That'll, that'll really suck. eBay. So when we were doing Pumpkinhead, or when we were going to do yeah, Pumpkinhead, yeah. I, uh, I was looking for Pumpkinhead 4 on DVD, and I found it. In a two-pack. Guess what the other movie is in the two-pack? What? Candyman. I now actually <laughs> so own <random>. Candyman. <laughs> Wait a minute. How'd you watch it for the podcast? I didn't. Remember, I made jokes about it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of shit I found out you didn't watch for the first few episodes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought this was like, yeah, we'll be done in a few weeks. This is this is all good. <laughs> Here, we, Here are, we are, 45, 45 episodes later. <laughs> Jesus. The long, we never even did bands this long, I don't think. <laughs> At least not with the same name or the same drummer. No, no. 
But anyways, Don Mancini's Chucky TV show is coming out on both USA and sci-fi in 2021. And there's like a really shitty teaser trailer thing they put out there. I think it's interesting that it's coming out on USA and sci-fi. And all I can think is the magicians and how much they fucking cuss and whatnot. And that show and how, how, you wouldn't be able to play it on most stations. Yeah. And I'm assuming like sci-fi is going to get like that version of Chucky and USA is going to get the highly edited one. That's the only thing that makes sense to me. We'll have to see. Uh, it's hit or miss. I'll, I'll check it out at least. <laughs> Arachnophobia officially turned 30 on July 18th, which means we officially turned old as fuck. Oh, damn. Cause I remember that shit came out in theaters, man. <laughs> oh, I need to go back and watch that, man. I haven't watched that since we were kids. I have arachnophobia, so I'm not a fan of watching that movie. <laughs> this one, you're talking about going back and rebuying shit. The Walking Dead comics are going to be released in color with the first issue coming out on October 7th. So I'm going to have to rebuy the Walking Dead comics. So they're doing the same thing fucking Nintendo did when they came out with the color Game Boy before the Game Boy Color. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like it was always a black and white comic. I don't know if you ever read them. The covers would be in color, but I, I think it'd be interesting to see the comic in color. So, yeah, I, I'm not going to buy individual issues. I'll wait till I can get the, the volume, you know. But yeah. It's pretty cool. For Walking Dead fans, that's pretty fucking cool. As far as announcements go, I did notice that bloodydisgusting.com, which I visit quite a bit, did a horror video games article, and they listed eight horror video games, and it included Brain Scan and Stay Alive, and it was suspiciously close to when we did that episode of the podcast. <laughs> This could be a coincidence, or we have a fan of Bloody Disgusting. I'm not sure. But Bloody Disgusting, if you need another podcast for your podcast network, <laughs> give us a call <laughs> and come up with your own stuff. Come on. Come on. I was actually surprised. I mean, I guess there isn't really a lot of horror video game films out there, but usually when people say that, they're talking about like the Resident Evil movie, stuff like that. I was surprised to see them go that route. And. I mean, brain scan, you're going pretty deep for that. Yeah. And nobody likes stay alive except for me, I think. So I just thought it was really odd and really coincidental to have it come out like a month after we did it or whatever. So. <laughs> well, uh, I, I haven't been able to watch much in between episodes this time because I've been cramming for a future episode. But uh, one thing I did get to see that I've been meaning to bring up to you is fucking Guns Akimbo. Okay. I haven't seen it yet. That whole thing about seeing somebody in a role removed from... Well, not, not just as a role, but, you know, somebody removed from something you're used to seeing them in. And that was, it was fun. You haven't seen Swiss Army Man, I'm assuming. Yeah, I've seen Swiss Army Man, but that's, that's so far out there. My brain doesn't know how to process it. <laughs> he was pretty fucking far removed in that. Well, this just made me want to go back and watch uh, Hardcore Henry and Upgrade again. I still haven't seen Upgrade. I got to see that. Oh, it's so good. That's what I hear it as a Lee Winnell fan. Might as well. I don't have that on here as news, I don't think. Lee Winnell, um... He's going to make the Wolfman movie starring Ryan Gosling. What? Do we talk about I this before? I sent it to you and your wife. Okay. It was in the group text. Okay. 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 Is he going to get fat again? I mean, what's, what's the plan here? <laughs> <laughs> Does he have to be fat to be the Wolfman? What the fuck? I don't know. It's the only like behind the scenes thing I know. And it's because you said it. So <laughs> that's all I got. Oh, the haagen ice <laughs> yes. cream thing. That's right. It was for lovely bones, right? Yeah. When we did the Peter Jackson episode. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And Peter Jackson was mad that he got fat <laughs> and he replaced him with Mark Wahlberg. Exactly. <laughs> Oh, shit. I'm now three episodes away from finishing The Magician Show. So I'm really excited about that. I read the first book since we did the last episode. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I'm on the second book now. I, I like the show better. I don't normally say that. 
they're just different and it's it's different in a good way. I started Cursed on or The Curse or I'm butchering the name here, but it's the new show on Netflix. It's like a different spin on the King Arthur story. Yeah. Pretty good so far. Okay. We've we've watched the trailer, but we haven't we haven't tried it out yet. Let it get going a little bit and then decide <laughs> if you like it. It's neat. You just don't really get the the whole vibe of the show until probably like the halfway through the second episode. And my wife and I, she got me to start watching that show you on Netflix. Oh, dude, you hadn't seen that yet? No. Oh, it's so good. It's filling that Dexter hole that I have. Yes, yes, yes. So I, I'm liking that. The first season was okay. I'm liking the second season more. I think it's because I like the girl more and she was Nell on uh Haunting a Hill House. Yeah. Right. But I like her character more than I liked the the girl's character in the first season. So but yeah, I mean I, I really can't think of anything else just because my wife and I have been trying to watch that and in pieces of a couple other shows. I feel like there's something else we started and and working on this and I don't know. I haven't even played that many video games recently. It's kind of scary. Oh wow. But uh we've rambled enough about a bunch of nonsense. I guess we should dive straight into the films. Yeah, yeah. What are we covering this episode? <laughs> the Sinister franchise. I hope you watch the right movies. Oh, oh. <laughs> so let's start with 2012 Sinister. And this film was directed by Scott Derrickson, who directed and wrote The Exorcism of Emily Rose. And he directed The Earth Stood Still, Deliver Us from Evil, which I think he also wrote that one as well. And he's also the director and writer of the first Doctor Strange movie, which I thought was a really good movie. Yeah. And it's written by C. Robert Cargill, which I'm assuming is a very close friend of his because they've done a lot of shit together. And when you when you see commentary with them for this movie, it, it's like they grew up together. But Robert Cargill wrote Sinister 1 and 2, as well as co-writing Doctor Strange and Bermuda, which is another film directed by Scott Derrickson. So I'm assuming they co-write everything together. Yeah. And that's really all I saw that he had written, which isn't bad for the amount of random lore he made up and stuff for some of these movies. (laughs) That's kind of neat. And then diving into co-writing a a Marvel movie. It's really crazy to me that these guys got a Marvel job like that with their experience. I'm not shitting on any of the movies they made here, but I mean, it's really weird looking at that and like, oh yeah, we're going to hire these guys to do a Marvel movie. You know what I mean? Man, there's some club that these guys are becoming a part of and we just don't understand. <laughs> well, they wanted a, a horror director to do Doctor Strange as with them being a sorcerer and, and like demon-like entities and, and Lovecraftian shit being involved. So I can see why they went with a horror director, but he hadn't done a whole lot. I feel like in that that area yet. So it's just kind of interesting. And but you know, now we get Sam Raimi to do the second one, but that's for another episode. Yeah, yeah. But you just made me figure it out. They're like, oh, you're an up and coming mostly horror director. You're not getting paid much. <laughs> ah. <laughs> there it is. Are you saying Joss Whedon and the Russo brothers took all their money? Yes. <laughs> but the cast for this movie, I mean, there's a bunch of scariest shit kids in this film but i'm, I'm not going to cover them we'll just go over the primary cast here but we got ethan hawk is ellison oswalt and holy shit where do we start with this guy what do we mention because he's been <laughs> in so many fucking movies i don't know i guess we could just do only genre flicks which actually is kind of bad for his career i think <laughs> yeah. he was in bigger shit than that but uh i was wearing from gattaca right you remember that yeah. movie and taking lives and then he was in Daybreakers and The Perch. Yeah. Right. And those are just his genre flicks. He was, I mean, Training Day. That's an awesome fucking movie. Hey, he, he's been in a bunch of shit, but he, he's a pretty big actor that they got for this movie. Once again, with a not so famous director and writer. 
right? And uh, it, this is a Blumhouse movie. I don't even know if I said that at the beginning. We should probably start saying that. Yeah. But this is a Blumhouse flick, and um, this is before The Purge, right? Uh, I think so. I believe so. So, you know, either way, like he's, he's in that Blumhouse family now, right? Yeah. Well, I don't know what my deal is, but I have the same issue with him that I have with uh, Josh Hartnett that I, okay. I can't tell you why, but I just don't like him. <laughs> and I got nothing. I, I got nothing to point to. <laughs> I just don't know what it is. But yeah, Ethan Hawke, he's been in a whole bunch of shit. So. Yeah. And then his wife, Tracy Oswalt, is portrayed by Juliet Rylance. And I hadn't seen her in anything else, but she was, it looks like a primary character in The Nick, American Gothic, and the brand new Perry Mason show. So she's been in some big TV shows. Okay. So, and then we got good old James Ransone as deputy so-and-so. He doesn't even have a fucking name in the movie. <laughs> and, and he's an actor that's been in a lot of shit as well, but it's usually like a smaller part or like the sidekick buddy. Yeah. The first thing I always remember him from is the HBO show Generation Kill, and he was fucking hilarious in that. But he was more recently in the It sequel, It 2, yeah. where he plays Eddie. But I like the guy. He's funny. And it was interesting seeing interviews with him because he was like, oh, man, I get to do a four-minute monologue with Ethan Hawke. And then he like, oh, no, I got to do a four-minute monologue <laughs> with Ethan Hawke. Right? Because he's like excited. Then he's like, well, how do I do this? Because I'm not that big yet. You know? <laughs> And uh, the movie's also starring a bunch of fucking creepy looking kids and Fred Thompson shows up. So that's cool. Yeah, yeah. But this movie was inspired by The Ring, which you can see that a little bit in it, and A Nightmare. Like a legitimate nightmare? Yeah. After C. Robert Cargill saw The Ring, he had a nightmare that night about finding a bunch of films in his attic with murder footage on them. And the murder footage from The Nightmare ended up being the film's opening scene. Ah. But Derrickson and Cargill's got together to discuss this idea of the movie after the nightmare over several drinks, from my understanding. And a week later, they were in Jason Blum's office pitching the idea for the movie. And they wrote the film in five weeks. That's quick as fuck. Yeah. They said they're just very excited about it. So it was just kind of like flying off the page as they went. And um, it, it's a horror movie. I, I meant to look up the budget. I didn't. Sorry. Maybe I'll remember to reference it on the next episode. But it, it was a, a pretty low budget for a horror film. And Derrickson said, just to let you know how low budget it was, the Mont Black pen that Ethan Hawke's character is using the entire film is actually the director's pen that he uses on set for movies. <laughs> and it was a really nice pen, and they wanted him to look like nice and prestigious and stuff. So he's like, here, use this, because I can't buy you one. So... <laughs> That's pretty funny. And um, really the last little bit I wanted to go over before getting into the, the movie itself was the movie uses practical effects and stunts for pretty much the whole fucking film, no. which, you know, I always hats off for that. The snuff films were actually shot on Super 8 film. It wasn't done with a computer after the fact or anything. They actually had to fire the original stunt coordinator because he botched the tree hanging stunt and hung four people. I mean, they saved them. No one died, thank God. But the guy fucked up their the rigs or the harnesses or whatever and was actually hanging people. Holy so, shit. Yeah, so that guy got fired. And um, even the pool scene that we'll cover in the film, they said it was the hardest to shoot because, one, they actually taped and tied people to lawn chairs and pulled them underwater. And, two, the stunt actor who plays Bagul, henceforth known as Mr. Bookie, had to actually wear weights on his legs and feet and walk on the bottom of the pool to film that scene. It was not done with any CGI. Holy shit. 
So that makes it a lot cooler. Where the fuck did the money go in the sequel? We'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Like I said, I did look up numbers. I feel terrible. I'll, I'll let you guys know in the next one. If we have an intermission, maybe I'll look it up in between as well. But um, I don't know. I just thought it was really interesting. I, I really like practical effects. And there's a lot of stuff in this movie they could have green screened and they didn't. And kudos to them. It's like the abyss. Like, how do you film all that shit to look like it's underwater? You film it underwater. <laughs> Yes. Who did James Cameron have to say it to? Was it James Wan, yes. right? When he's shooting Aquaman? Yes. Yeah. He's like, I fucking shot it underwater. We need a shot of you underwater in the pool. How are we going to pull that off? Get underwater. Hey, man, it works. It did, man. That's that's crazy. But that's it for my behind the scenes. I'm just going to dive right into the movie now. We open up with some gritty eight millimeter snuff film footage of a family hanging out in front of a tree. Kids on a tire swing. And then it just hard cuts to a family with basically burlap sacks over their heads, right? Yep. Hanging from the tree one way, and they MacGyvered the shit out of this tree because <laughs> the rope goes up and over a limb like a pulley, and then it goes to a heavier limb. And you can see a, a, a pole saw being operated by somebody hiding behind the tree that cuts the heavy limb and drops it and hangs the family. And you watch them slowly choke to death and die. And this is a very creepy-ass scene. And honestly, all of the snuff film scenes in this film are fucking horrifying. Yeah. But now that you're totally freaked out from this opening scene, we cut to a bright sunny day as the Oswald family are moving into their new home. And you can start to get Ellison, Ethan Hawke's character's vibe right off the bat because he's only pulling boxes off the truck that say office on it and taking it to his office. He could give a fuck about unpacking anybody else's shit, right? He's just worried about himself. And that's his character for most of the movie, yeah, right? Yeah. And we see Sheriff motherfucking Fred Thompson show up to give the family some shit for moving into town and basically tell him he wants him to leave, right? Like, what can I do to convince you to pack up that truck and get the fuck out of here? Nope. And we also see when he rolls up that his deputy is a huge fan of Ellison and has a book that he wants Ellison autograph. And he's basically told to fuck off by his boss. Right. But we find out from this scene that Ellison is a famous author and he wrote a book called Kentucky blood. And it was like a true crime book. And the sheriff actually liked that book. Then he wrote some other true crime books that put cops in a bad light. And he actually put bad info in there that let the murderer go free in this situation. One of these crimes so the police are not a fan of him just because of the way he's painted them and, and for him letting a, a murderer go free, right? Yeah, not going to be helping with this book. Right, right. And we find out that basically every time they move somewhere, the sheriff comes and gives them shit. This is just the fastest that it's happened, right? <laughs> but an important takeaway from this whole moving scene here is that the family, primarily the kids, really did not want to move here. And they're sick of their dad moving them around all the time to write books. And you see him tell his little daughter and his wife that he just wants to be famous again. Right. And you can see that no matter what the cost is, no matter what it does to his family, he's going to write another hit book because he can't just be that guy that wrote the one good book. Right. Yeah. Oh, and uh, the sheriff, before he pulls away, lets him know that moving here into this house is poor taste. <laughs> and Tracy catches on to that line and wants to make sure that they didn't move into a house a few houses down to where someone from his book was killed. We didn't. He didn't lie. No, he didn't. <laughs> they are in the house from the snuff film we saw at the beginning, and we can tell because the tree's in the backyard, and for some reason, they never moved the sawed-off limb, so it's still just sitting there half-attached. Yeah. Don't know why. I don't know how recently the murders happened. 
But this uh-huh. motherfucker moved his family into the house where a family was murdered in the backyard, and he's covering that in his book. So, yeah, bad taste is one way to put it. <laughs> but after Pseudo telling his wife the truth and reflecting on his mistakes as he stares at the you know murder tree in the backyard, he decides to take a box up into the attic, and he's charged by a scorpion. As he goes up the attic, which I don't think is real common for that part of the country. So that's odd right out the right out the gate. Yeah. And he finds a box in the attic that says home movies on the side. And it has eight millimeter films in it, as well as a projector. And I think the camera for it. Right. Nope. And I'm just saying, I still have boxes in my old house that I bought over a decade ago that were there when I moved in there. And this film hadn't came out yet. And I still haven't opened those fucking boxes because you don't just open random boxes in the attic when you move in. Okay. It's just not a thing you do. <laughs> hey man, when we moved in this house, we found a high chair and a, and a home theater system and no home snuff films though. Sorry. I mean, technically he found a home theater system in a, in a manner of speaking. Hey, hey. But that night over dinner, we find out that the family has to cut corners because they're still paying for the old house. And the kids want to know if the book's going to be good this time. And the dad's like, of course, it's going to be. My books are always good. But basically, they're sick of fucking moving, right? And the older child, Trevor, wants to know about the crime. And um, the mom doesn't want them to know anything about it. And he has a good argument. He's like, I'm going to hear about it as soon as I go to school. So I might as well hear it from you, right? No. <laughs> But they're pretty young kids. But basically, they're told by their mother to stay the fuck out of his office. And he's told to keep the office fucking locked at all times, right? So just keep the kids detached from this as much as possible. And basically, we we can see that Tracy's just sick of all of his shit. And he might need to give up on his dreams to have another hit book, right? Like, she's happy with him just being that author, go do other stuff, be a professor, write other books, spend time with your family, right? Yeah. But at this point, we cut to Ellison in his home office, which is where he spends a good part of this film. And he's going over some gruesome crime scene photos of the tree hanging we saw at the beginning. And he notices that there's a crime scene photo of the attic and the attic's empty. So he knows the box wasn't there originally. So he just says, fuck it. I'm going to watch the home movies now. Right. <laughs> and I'm going to try to to remember to say the names of the, the reels as we cover them. But the box says home movies. And then each reel of eight millimeter film has a uh, like masking tape Sharpie name on the side. And when you hear the innocent name of the film and then watch the movie, you're like, what the fuck? (laughs) So the first one where the family's hung from the tree says family hanging out 11. So it happened in 2011. And this movie, I think it's supposed to be in 2012. Yeah. Actually, I know it's in 2012. Right. So it's been a year. Yeah. Yeah, that that movie title is awfully punny. <laughs> there we go, punny. That's a good that's a good way to say it. I was thinking they're a little fucky, but <laughs> oh, they are. <laughs> but the film shows a family literally hanging out around a tree and then hanging from a tree, and we can see from the footage in his notes and the pictures in his office that they have a daughter that's missing, right? And that was briefly mentioned in his discussion with the sheriff, right? Yeah. And just to remind you, this is the same fucking house that he's living in, okay, that, that he's brought his family into. And, and he's, you know, looking at things in the pictures that you've seen in the house already. And it's just really fucked up and dark. Yeah, yeah. This is not cool. But as I said in the beginning, the snuff film ends with the family being hung and killed. And we can see how horrified Ethan Hawke, like, as he watches the movie. And um, he carries this on throughout the film, right? Like, his his breakdown is very gradual throughout the movie. 
And they basically gave him a number scale of how upset he should be from the films because they shot the movie out of, out of order, like normal. Yeah. But they wanted him to progressively get more disturbed as he went. And I think he fucking carries that part of this movie very well because ultimately for two-thirds of the movie, you're just watching somebody being horrified from watching horror films. Yeah, that's the meat of the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And man, does he do it. But after watching this family get murdered, he murders a bottle of whiskey, right? And he gives the film a second viewing. Maybe it's better after whiskey. I don't know. <laughs> but he starts to write questions down on his paper, like who filmed it and where's Stephanie? Because that's the missing daughter. We then get an endearing scene of Ellison with his daughter because she kind of does like this run by jump scare and you don't know who it is. And he finds her and she doesn't know where the bathroom is in the new house, which is kind of funny. Yeah. And the director and writer did this on purpose. Like they wanted to break the tension sometimes. Okay. When something really fucked up happened because they knew it was like a really deep, dark, realistic thing, including a credit scene at the end, which I'll get to there. And, um, he has this endearing scene with his daughter and I'm assuming cause he's just covered this family being murdered and their daughter missing. So, so that's why he tucks her into bed and talks to her. So he celebrates this by watching another snuff film. <laughs> and this one's called barbecue 79. And this one contains a family fishing and then being burned alive inside their car that night. Right. Yeah. And once again, Ethan Hawke's response is fantastic and escalated. And I mean, they filmed him watching like the snuff videos for the first time is how they did it. Some of them, they had to do multiple takes, but they're like, and watch this video film. Oh, wow. So yes, he's adding on to it, but part of it is him going like, what the fuck am I watching? You know. <laughs> but after watching that film, Ellison decides he should call the police and let him know what he found. Right. So he dials the operator. Cause apparently you still have to do that in this movie. <laughs> and he gets the police and he starts looking at his Kentucky blood books in his like glass case and he decides to hang up because being famous once again is more important than helping people solve a murder case right like you know it's more important than keeping his family happy it's more important than finding this girl he's gonna write the book so he can't spoil it by giving this footage away yep so he then goes to pop in the third film titled pool party 66 and he's interrupted by movement in the house, right? That he hears. And he assumes it's his daughter, Ashley, again, looking for the bathroom or something. And he goes looking through the house and he's surprised by another creepy box. But this one contains a son <laughs> doing like a weird exorcist backbend accompanied by a terrifying scream as he bends out of the box. And we find out conveniently in the scene that Trevor has night terrors, always has had night terrors, and they have to run him outside to wake him up. And this is just shit that happens. Yeah, has nothing to do with his father's profession whatsoever. Right, right. Well, I was <laughs> worth saying it's not a possession thing from a haunted house, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. But yes, I'm sure his father's fucked him up in the head at this point. <laughs> this is actually based off of Derrickson's own son who suffers from night terrors and he's done similar things to this. Oh, okay. They've done them in similar odd places. They had to run him outside to wake him up and things like that. So it, it's interesting Damn. to me that you have like that and a nightmare and stuff brought into this movie, right? Like there is some real world stuff from the writers because he's a co-writer of this film as well. So the writers and the director are bringing real world stuff in there. Yeah. It's got soul. Right, right. And you almost think Ellison has soul because he's so upset about his son and he looks at his wife to come clean. And then he doesn't. <laughs> he just says, I'm sorry. And she forgives him, which she does a little too much in this movie. Yeah. 
But the next day we see the Oswalds eating breakfast and the kids head off to school and the mom runs off to do errands to, to leave Ellison to work. And, you know, after having this nice family breakfast, he's got to get right to some snuff films, right? So he starts up pool party from, from the night before and it shows an innocent daytime pool party until it cuts to nighttime again. And we see families strapped to beach chairs and they're drug into the pool head first. And they drowned. And that's the scene I was talking about earlier. They said it was the hardest one to do. I do want to point out that if you pay attention during the family hanging out scenes in the in these films, you can see the families you are are usually drinking something, right? Yeah. However, in this film, we can see the drinks after the murders. And there's an odd green glow in the glass. <laughs> Foreshadowing. I was going to go with the reagent, but that'll work too. <laughs> I don't know. After this podcast, I can't see green glow and liquid and not think of the reagent. I know. But there's something else odd in this particular snuff film. And that would be Mr. Boogie walking on the bottom of the pool. And he stops and stares at the camera, basically like he's staring into Ellison's soul, it seems like, right? Like he knows he's there. And there's nothing scarier than having a professional wrestler just stare at you. <laughs> he does have the cane haircut, but it does look like some like Corey Taylor slipknot <laughs> outfit to me as well. There you go. Apparently, they originally designed the costume to basically look like the Johnny Depp Wooly Wonka. And that's what they wanted Mr. Boogie to look like. That's how they envisioned him. But then they started thinking about if he's supposed to be this ancient pagan Babylonian deity, that's kind of ridiculous. Yeah, he's got to be like darker and older. So what they did was they scoured the Internet looking at, at people's artwork for the Boogeyman. And they found one they really liked and, and paid the rights and bought it from the artist. Oh, no shit. And designed the character off of it. Yeah, there's a lot of cool shit about this movie. I mean, this is like a, two dudes getting together that are friends and, and fucking making a movie and, and doing a lot of things right, honestly, with the special effects and the design and stuff. And there's a little spot where it, it dips off and I'll get there, but. Well, hopefully it wasn't like, hey, man, you want to make a snuff film? No, but I've got an idea. <laughs> the true story right it wasn't yeah, yeah. a nightmare that was bullshit yeah, yeah. It was, this was all over the, like uh, a handle of whiskey <laughs> <laughs> is it the same whiskey Ellison drinks that that's why it's in there man <laughs> it's a true story true story <laughs> but after seeing this Ellison rewinds the film back to where Mr. Boogie walks up and, and looks at the camera and he steps closer to the projector and as he's examining the footage, the film burst into flames. And I just want to point out that I was a projectionist twice in my life and for at least five years. And I can confirm that it, you never just stop the film uh -uh. with the light on like that. That is a terrible idea. And film is flammable shit. Okay? <laughs> so watching the movie, I hadn't seen it in a while. And as soon as he did it, I was like, mm -mm. <laughs> exactly. And it catched on fire. So that is factual in case you're wondering. But he then Googles, I don't even remember if it's Google or if it's like some made up shit, like in Supernatural, but he basically Googles how to edit eight millimeter film <laughs> and how to copy it digitally. Right. And he actually has like a little splicer so he can splice the film where he burned it. And he uses a digital camera to capture the film. And I don't remember if he does it off the film or off the, the, where he's projecting it on the sheet, but he now has the shit on his Mac so he can rewind it and pause it easier without catching shit on fire. Yeah. Smart man. But somewhere around here, the family comes home and you can hear the mom yelling at Trevor and he's in deep shit for drawing on the whiteboard at school with a Sharpie. And it's not just that he drew on the whiteboard <laughs> with a Sharpie. He drew a family being hung from a tree, right? And 
the mom's mad and Ellison's relieved because he finds out that that's all he heard. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Not that they're living in the house or anything, but all he knows is that a family was hung in the town and that's his dad's writing his book about. And Tracy understandably is pissed. And he explains that he's doing the right thing though, because bad things happen to good people and their stories deserve to be told. You're a real man of the people. But that night after putting the family to bed, he goes back to his office to do his nightly ritual and watch some snuff films. So he breaks out sleepy time 98. And this one shows a family tied to their beds at night and having all of their throats slit. And it doesn't have like the preemptive like family doing nice normal shit like yeah. the other ones do, right? It just cuts straight to it. And it's it's some hardcore shit. These scenes are done, I hate to say really well, but they're done really well. Yeah, they're creepy and they're they're kind of sparse and you don't really know what's going on. And until you know what what else is going on in the movie, they're creepy. It fucking works. But Ellison really throws down some whiskey this time around. Like he's extra disturbed from this one. And it's I don't know. It is different how this one happens because the other ones they're just like hung or like dragged into water. And this one, you have to actually watch your throats get slit. Right. Yeah. So it, this one fucks with him to an extra level. But Ellison notices some extra shit on this video. He sees a strange symbol drawn on the wall in the hallway and he prints that bad boy out and files it with the, the rest of his like CSI clues. And he also catches a sign that I think it had the family's name on there and, and said St. Louis. So he searches for murders that happened in 98 in St. Louis, and he finds the Miller family that was murdered via stabbing, and they have a son that's missing. So now he has a tie between that murder and his murder. Yep. He immediately hears a sound in the attic after watching that scene, and he ignores it and goes back to work. And so then all the lights eerily go out in the house, and the sound gets louder, right? Like something spooky and supernatural wants you to come investigate. Yeah, and he runs out into the front yard. That's what he should have done with his whole family far, far away. But uh, after checking room to room to make sure his family's okay, he doesn't find anything. And we and Ellison are forced to poop our pants as a loud bang happens in the attic. And this makes him go at least grab a knife before he goes and investigates, right? <laughs> because a kitchen knife would scare Toby out of the attic, right? Totally. No, <laughs> but he heads up into the attic only to find the box lid from the home movies box and it's moving around and he knocks it over and it's, I think supposed to be a coral snake to scare us, but it's actually like a king snake. If you do the rhyme shit. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, it was living under the box and after Ellison shits his pants, he grabs the box lid and he looks at it and there's a sketch almost like a child drew it of all the families that had died on these videos so far. And there's a name and they all match and they all include a character named Mr. Boogie watching the family laying next to the pool, watching the family hanging from the tree, etc. And he hears another loud sound on the attic and he goes to investigate it with his cell phone using the, uh, the camera light or whatever to see. And he randomly falls to the ceiling, but he appears to hang there for just a second before he falls. Right. Yeah. We then see that the paramedics and the deputy from earlier at his house and they patch up his leg and the deputy takes him to go investigate the sounds in the attic. And they actually have this weird semi comedy discussion about like what animals have feet and what animals can make stomping sounds. <laughs> and on the commentary, the the director and writer are like, I don't know at what point we accidentally wrote a Coen brothers scene into the movie, but we did. Right. <laughs> 
<laughs> there you go. And I don't know. It works. It, it really works. This movie does a good job. Like I'll, I'll say it. I hate jump scares. This movie has good jump scares, has creepy snuff films, and then it breaks the tension yeah. at just the right times. I feel like, and that was their desire. So they, they accomplished the shit out of that. But after having this, Awkward conversation. The deputy asked for an autographed copy of the book, but he left his copy at home. So Ellison takes him into his office and he sees the CSI like room and he offers to help do research for the book so that he could be the deputy. So-and-so thanked in the book. Like you see all the time, right? Hence his name, deputy. So-and-so in these movies. Hey, but the next day we see that Ellison's reliving his glory days, watching old VHS interviews from his first book when he was like doing a book tour after he got famous and he he's looking at how in all the interviews, he's acting like he did it for justice and for the people and how he didn't do it for glory and, and for the fame, which is the opposite of how he is now. Right. Yeah. And this basically just lights a fire in his ass to do some more research for his book. And he starts going through all of his research again. And he finds Mr. Boogie in the footage for all of the films, either where he never noticed him before or that he's now appearing yeah. in the films. And I'd like to point out that at this point in the movie, he watched the first two films and never saw Mr. Boogie. And he had the opportunity to alert the authorities and he didn't do it. So at that point, it's like he accepted Mr. Boogie. Right. Ah. And if you listen, if you listen to the lore later in the movie, it makes it where like he shows up in the footage now. Cause when he watches the third film is the first time you see him. But now when he goes back and watches film one and two, he's there. And ever since he made that decision to not call the police is when he started hearing shit in the house and things start moving around. Right. So things are more than they seem now. Right. Yeah. He's an enabler. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we see Tracy, his wife in the kitchen, making coffee for him. And the daughter, Ashley, really wants to help make the coffee. And Tracy shows Ashley how to make the coffee and says, your daddy likes it very particular. You have to make it this way. And she goes and delivers the coffee to her father. And he doesn't even give the time of day. He just fucking shuts the door in her face. Yeah. And that's not the response that she wanted. And you get that in that scene. And it's very important to pay attention to Ashley's cues throughout this movie on not wanting to move and not getting enough attention from her father. Because this is all going to escalate. Yeah, it is. But deputy so-and-so calls him with some info on some previous murders. And he finds out that the family that died in his house lived in the Miller's house before they lived here. And the Millers were the, the stabbing victims or the, the slit throat family. Right. Yeah. So the family that was hung from the tree lived there, moved out and then got killed here. But while he's talking to the deputy, there's a digital picture of Mr. Boogie paused on his Mac. And in the scene, he turns and looks at Ellison. Right. Boogie does. It almost looks like a Harry Potter, like newspaper, right? Like the way it like animates. Yeah, and, moves. Yeah. and when Ellison goes back to look at the screen, Boogie has moved back to the, the original position and he doesn't actually see this happen. I'm maybe in the corner of his eye, but he didn't actually see it. Yeah. Almost too much there. It was kind of cool to me because that's letting you know that like the supernatural parts coming in now, because like he saw Boogie in film three and then. You see him find Buggy in film one and two, like I said earlier, where we never saw him before, but maybe, maybe he wasn't paying enough attention. Maybe he didn't zoom in. He didn't have him digital yet, right? But now we know it's supernatural because the motherfucker can look at him when he's talking about yeah, it. Yeah, reacting in real time and shit. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like that was just there to let the audience know, yes, this is supernatural. It's not like a serial killer that he's reading into, right? Because yeah. this movie does have a lot of tones of, of, of being like a seven 
type foam. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. Eight millimeter even. It's, it's very much like an eight millimeter, but with supernatural. But Ellison decides to go over a different footage on his computer, including the phone footage from where he was walking through the attic where he heard the sound. And he's watching the footage of where he fell. And basically the phone swaps to the selfie cam. And he notices little kid ghost hands grabbing onto him. And that explains why he kind of hung there for a second. And this just really freaks him the fuck out, right? It should. (laughs) (laughs) And we immediately cut to him in bed, which I wouldn't have been able to sleep that night. But he's awakened by the sound of the projector running. And he goes into his office to find the eight millimeter hanging out film playing on the projector as well as on his computer and they're in sync and everything. Yeah. Right. And it's not like the computer controls the projector. They're completely independent of one another and they're doing this. And he sees Boogie in the shot and he picks up a picture that he had printed out earlier from that scene of Boogie hanging of Boogie <laughs> hanging out in the bushes. I wasn't really trying to do that, but it happened. And he holds the picture up at the window to look at the bushes. And when he pulls it down, Boogie's actually standing in the bushes, right? And this scares the shit out of him. And he runs out in the backyard of the bat to fight the boogeyman only to find that his son is out in the bushes, freezing ass cold, having another night terror. Right. Yeah. So Tracy and Ellison put Trevor to bed and they start discussing needing to add locks to this door because he's sneaking out. I might've would have done that earlier if I had a child of the condition. And, um, Ellison goes to get his light that he left outside and he's basically frightened by Cujo. Right. <laughs> And he tries to reason with this dog. (laughs) But somewhere in here, we get multiple hard cuts of the camera changing angles between Ellison and the dog. And one of the times when it cuts to Ellison's face, there is an army of creepy ghosts standing behind him. And he's completely unaware of this. So he has some conversation with his wife. And then we cut to the next day. And Deputy So-and-so comes over with some more info for Ellison. And he lets him know that he knows a serial killing when he sees one, right? He has a criminal justice degree and he's not just a podunk cop. And and obviously these crimes are connected. And Ellison decides to let him fully in on the case at this point and shows him all of his work. And they start going over different theories. And Ellison thinks that the families were drugged so that the murders would be easier to do. And that's why everyone's so complacent when they're being dragged into a pool, hung, having their throats slit, et cetera. Um, he also says that in each case, the whole family is killed except for one child who is missing. And he knows that now the symbol shows up multiple times. And I don't recall him finding it other than the Millers in the hallway, but I'm assuming either he saw it more times and I didn't catch it or deleted footage somewhere down the road. But he knows the symbol is a common thing. Yeah, I only remember the hallway one as well. But after seeing the symbol and the pics of Mr. Boogie, the deputy tells Ellison that this seems very occult-like, right? And that he should call the local university and talk to Professor Jonas, or Dr. Jonas, I don't remember how he's referred there, but he handles occult shit. That's his thing, right? So, like, maybe take this information to him, and he can help help us, basically, with the case at this point. And after their meeting, Ellison pops in, the the film called Lawn Party 86, where we discover what the actual brown sound sounds like. <laughs> in this footage, we see that a family is buried in their yard up to their heads as the cameraman is pushing a lawnmower and runs over all of their heads with said lawnmower. Dude, that is the best kill movie in the whole thing. Especially when you're when you're forgotten about the scene and you're not paying attention and you look up and you're and you ask your wife, is the lawnmower even running? Oh God, it's running. 
Yeah. Um, there are other ones that, if you watched them muted, bothered me worse than that one. I can see that. But the sound of that one, it fucking gets you. And it is not a cheap jump scare. I think it's just supposed to show how abrupt it was to Ellison what happened. Yeah. Like he's watching this video for some reason. Maybe he's hammered enough whiskey. I don't know. He He's like, huh, I wonder what could go wrong in this one. <laughs> What's this right? mowing like, the lawn And shit. then it happens. <laughs> it's fucked up. <laughs> but this one clearly gets Ellison worse than the other ones, and he has to break up the smokes on this one. And then he receives a video call from Dr. Jonas, who is played by an uncredited Vincent D'Onofrio. He's not even credited? Nuh-uh. And according to the director, he basically didn't memorize a script and did his own thing, but he's like, he's Vincent D'Onofrio. He doesn't have to memorize my script. <laughs> Damn right. Right. Cause he got everything. He didn't say what I wrote, but he did what, uh, what it needed him to perfectly. <laughs> but he says he's aware of all of these past crimes, right? He had already linked them together and he's aware of the symbol being there. I'm assuming that's how he linked them. He might not know about boogie yet. Cause he hasn't seen the footage, but the symbols are on crime scene footage, right? Yeah. And he explains that the symbol is the symbol of a pagan god named Bagul, and he's the eater of children. And he goes into mythology a little bit here. It goes into more detail later. But Dr. Jonas realizes that there's another crime related to this, and he wants to know all about it. And it fades out, and you're basically, I anyways, assume that he went over the case with Dr. Jonas a bit, right? Because yeah. like, now they're colleagues working on this together. But they don't show that. But that night, Ellison wakes up in his bed again to the sound of a projector. And this time he decides to search the whole house with his trusty bat. Right. And we get the joy of shitting our pants again from a creepy ghost girl jump scare. No sound. She just fucking darkness. And here's her face. Right. And at this point we realize that he's unaware of these ghost children. When we see him. Yeah. It was debatable with the dog because the dog was barking like it saw something, but Ellison never saw the kids. But she's like right over his shoulder, and he has no clue she's there, and she just kind of runs off, right? I got to point something out real quick because the, the jump scare with her is kind of like, eh. And then immediately after that is he walks away, and she jumps away, and he's still in normal speed, and she's like in slow motion going off into the further. Yes. Fucking love that shot. And this whole scene is that way. I'm glad you mentioned that. Without going into detail, we see different ghost kids that we saw earlier appearing in this movie, and they are moving in a different speed than him and also running all the way up to him and he's turning around like he heard something yeah and they, they cut into a hallway and basically what we're supposed to get here are the kids are playing hide and seek with them yeah and they're running around and hiding and like almost running up to him and then oh you can't get me and that explains why he hears the creaking in the house that explains why i heard shit in the attic he can't see the kids but he can hear them you know making the boards creak and moving furniture in his house no nope. it's almost like they're they would be good at moving boxes with film footage in them. Hey, children have feet. Yes. <laughs> and they can make stomping sounds like squirrels. <laughs> Unlike snakes, though, and scorpions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we can see one of the ghost girls. I can't remember if it's the same one that popped up earlier, but one of them is hiding in Ashley's room. And Ashley's awake, staring at this girl sitting in the corner. And the girl has painted Mr. Boogie on the wall. And she does a shh gesture to Ashley. And... I don't know if I said it earlier, but Ashley's kind of an artist and likes to paint on walls. So they're like, you can paint all over this room only, yeah, <laughs> but not in the rest of the house. And now this ghost girl's painted boogie in there and, and we can see that children can see the ghost and 
the dog could see it earlier. So now you're getting into a little bit of old lore on dogs and children being able to see ghosts yep. or can actually see them for other reasons that I'll get into later. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, <clears throat> foreshadowing. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Ellison wakes up on the couch where he passed out that night with his bat and he has the deputy come over for some coffee. And basically he's asking the deputy, did the family before me report weird shit happening? Did the paramedics, coroner, anybody, did anybody think they saw or heard something strange in the house? And he says that wasn't reported to him, but he gets that he's talking about supernatural. And the deputy also finds out here that Ellison hasn't told his wife about the house yet, right? Yeah. And they continue to discuss spooky shit that Ellison's been witnessing in the house. And, and the deputy just once again confirms that he hasn't heard anything like that. And he just tries to make Ellison feel better by letting him know, I, look, you moved into a, a house where fucked up shit happened. I've seen your whiskey bottles. I know you've been drinking a bit. You're researching some dark shit. Your mind's in a dark place right now. And it's just that playing tricks on you. And he's like, so you don't believe in the supernatural? And the deputy's like, no, no, no. I definitely believe in the supernatural. I wouldn't live in this fucking house, right? <laughs> and at this point, Ethan Hawke really looks like he's lost his shit. Like when he's trying to talk to the the deputy, we can see that he is not a a normal human at this point. He's like a fractured soul. Yeah, he's channeling his Jack Torrance. Yeah, yeah. But later that day, we see that Ashley gets in trouble for painting on the hallway wall, which is outside of her room. And she didn't just paint. She painted a girl swinging on a tire swing. And she tells her parents that it's her friend and her friend used to live here. And at this point, Tracy figures out that the family that he's writing about that was murdered lived in the house before them. And she is livid about it. And he tries to confront her with the technicality about them not being murdered in the house. It, it happened in the backyard. And they continue to fight as he talks about his books being all that he has and they have to be his legacy. And his wife sets him straight on what he actually has now and what his legacy should be, right? Yeah, his fucking kids. <laughs> right, right. His wife and his kids are what he has now and his children should be his legacy. So she's trying to make him just not be a fucking piece of shit deadbeat dad at this point, right? Yeah. And at this point, we dive straight into the third act. We see Tracy put the kids to bed, and we find Ellison's passed out on the couch because he's in the doghouse at this point, right? Not Cujo's house because he's too mean, but he's on the couch. <laughs> and he's passed out, but there's an old interview of his playing, and she's listening to it. And on the interview, he's talking about his love for his family and how important family is. And how he'd do anything for his family and blah, blah, blah. And he's not going to let the fame go to his head, basically. And this immediately makes her remember why she loves him and causes her to forgive him and get him to go to bed, right? We see Ellison and Tracy sleeping in their bed and then a light pops in their face. This doesn't seem to, to wake them up, but the light goes off and you hear either a camera or a projector rolling. It's hard to tell because the eight millimeter crank camera projector, you know, the film's going to make the same sound. I think it's the projector at this point. But Ellison wakes up and he goes to check his office, which is unlocked and wide open. And the camera and projector are both missing. He then hears the film rolling again and tries to discover where it's coming from in the house. And he finds that the attic door is open and the ceiling and the stairs are down or the ladder or whatever. And he goes up and he finds a bunch of creepy ghost kids watching the snuff films in the attic. And they slowly turn to him and they shush him. And... 
as Mr. Boogie walks into the screen up to the camera, Mr. Boogie's face jump scares out of frame and looks basically he would be like three inches from Ellison's face and scares the bejesus out of him and me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, as I do- dove back in my chair, Ellison fell down the attic stairs, right? <laughs> and it's creepy if you're not expecting it. Yeah. It has a sequel later. Oh, six and, six. and that one really got me. <laughs> oh. But uh, Ellison falls to the floor and then the projector and all the films are thrown down the attic hole towards them. And this creepy ass, really cool score kicks in, quite frankly. And I should have looked up who, who it was because I really like the music that's playing here. It's so out of place and not at the same time while giving me the heebie-jeebies. Yeah, you're right. It's weird because it feels out of place. Like if you just played it for someone said, yeah, I'm going to put this in this dramatic scene in this horror movie. And like, this is just weird. It's like it's going to break into a dance party or something. It's like, oh, it's fucking creepy, man. <laughs> right, right. And it, it really is creepy and very fitting. But the music kicks in. He takes the reels and the projector. He puts them out of a burn barrel in the backyard. And he lights them on fire and he just watches them all burn. And Tracy comes outside to see what the fuck's going on. And he tells her that he made a mistake. He should have never brought the family there. Get the kids, pack the car. We're going back to our old house now. Right. And like, why are you still fucking standing here now? <laughs> right, 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 right. Cause she's like, what? And he's like, fucking go. <laughs> but on the way out of town, they're pulled over by the sheriff. Cause they're hauling ass. And Ellison lets the sheriff know that he decided to follow his advice and he's leaving town. And he's not going to look back and he's not even going to finish writing the book. And the sheriff looks upset at this point and he wants to make sure that they were not threatened or ran out of town. Right. Like he doesn't like them, but he doesn't want that happening either. Right. And he's like, no, I'm just I'm just done. And the sheriff lets him go and out of the ticket and he tells him to slow it down until he crosses the county line and he becomes somebody else's problem. Yeah. Right. (laughs) But then we cut to their old house and we see that the family's getting settled and Ellison's starting to break down his research work, right? Like he's, he's throwing stuff away. He's erasing his whiteboard. And the whole time deputy so-and-so is calling him on his cell phone and he's literally in the cell phone. It's deputy so-and-so yeah. and he he's ghosting him. He's ignoring all the calls. But after this goes on for a while, he receives an email from Dr. Jonas and it has some research on Bagul and he immediately like video chat calls him again. Right. And he lets them know that it was really hard to find information on Bagul because it's usually destroyed because of superstition. People are afraid of Bagul because supposedly he can live in imagery. And viewing this imagery, whether it's a a stone cave drawing or a painting or video footage in this example, people believe that this gives them power and, and, and makes them real in your world. Right. And, and brings them in and this allows him to take over children maybe. Right No. And Ellison wants to know if destroying the footage would kill him. And at this point, Dr. Jonas is like, what the fuck? We're talking about a fictional character here, right? Or, <laughs> or an old legend. What kind of book are you writing? And Ellison ends the chat at this point and dodges another call from the deputy. I want to point out that the images that Dr. Jonas sends him show that Bagul can take the form of a scorpion or a snake. And I want to say there's another animal in there as well. But that explains why he saw the scorpion and the snake. Yeah. That was actually Bagul in his house. You know, you see this a lot in old legends and in horror films and fantasy stories like the the god or the Eldric being does not initially have so much power in your world yet. Right. So you can take the form of an animal and, and do things. And I guess until you let him in. Right. And then he can fully come in. Yeah. Yeah. 
But Ellison decides to take a box upstairs to the attic, which I would not have done for a while. No, no. Fuck right, attics. At <laughs> Basements all the way. But he <laughs> finds another box of home videos, and it has a, another projector and film in it. And there's an envelope that says extended cut endings. The director and writer wonder how corny that is every time they see the scene. Right. When they rewatch the movie, like, should we have done that? But how else were you going to get these there? Yeah. Right. Like, I do like that we got the Zack Snyder director's cut, you know, coming <laughs> on HBO Max here of the snuff films. But back in, in his office, we see Ellison assembling the footage as he's chugging some coffee. And I want to point out that he sets the coffee on a pink note that we can't quite see yet. And it's going to come into play in a minute. Hey, I didn't catch that. Ah, but he finally takes the call from the deputy as he's threading the film through the projector. And he finds out that he should not have moved because at this point he sped up the killer's timeline. Each family that was murdered lived in the previously murdered family's home and they weren't killed until they moved. So the deputy is going on the assumption that it's a serial killer, right? Yeah. And since they've moved out of the previous house, now it's time for him to follow them and kill them. So they're next. Yada, yada. Ellison gets off the phone and he, he watches the director's cut of the snuff films only discover that it's the missing kids that are filming the family beforehand and they set the camera down and then they go into the shot and then you find out that it's the kids murdering the family and they all basically walk up to the camera at the end and do the shush thing and vanish. Right. Yep. And he appears ill at this point and not like he's disturbed, but like he's getting physically ill. And he stands up all woozy and he looks at his coffee mug only to find that it has green glue and shit in it. Like we saw earlier. And he looks at the pink piece of paper on the desk and it says, good night, daddy. So his daughter made the coffee. Dun, dun, dun. Right. Cause she knows the particular way daddy likes his coffee now with reagent in it. <laughs> exactly. And the reagent calls him to pass out on the floor. He's foaming at the mouth and Ashley's there as he falls over to say that she is glad that he made the movies longer because they're better this way. <laughs> and he wakes up on some plastic on the floor, all gagged up with his wife and son there, Dexter style, basically. Yeah. And Ashley's in the room with the camera and dragging an axe on the floor. And the fact that she's like dragging the axe instead of carrying it over her shoulder is so much creepier to me. Yes. But she lets him know not to worry because she's going to make him famous again. And then she axe murders the entire fucking family. <laughs> we see her eight millimeter footage playing on, on the sheet on the wall as she shushes the camera. And then we can see on the footage that there's blood splatter on the walls and paintings of Bagul symbols. And then we see that she is watching her own footage in her dad's office. She's actually in the room where it's playing and all the ghost kids run up to the camera, stare at the camera and then cut their heads to her. And she's drawing her family's murder in the box lid of the boogie there. And she stands there and stares at them and they tilt their heads. And then she tilts her head with them, right? Like mirrored. Yeah. And boogie's standing behind her and you can't see his head. till she tilts hers and he scoops her up and they vanish from the real world, instantly appearing in the film and walking down the hall and you would assume that's what happened to the kids, right? Like they vanished and went to the film. And that was part of the Bagul legend or mythology is that you went into his imagery with him, right? Yeah. The end, kind of. We then go to the credits and we get a really early like seconds in credit scene. And the camera cuts to the attic and you see the box of home movies and it starts to zoom in. 
on the box. And we can see that there is a new reel in there called House Painting 12, right? Yeah. That murder. And uh, we're done, except for, oh, one more thing. Mr. Boogie jumps in the frame to scare the shit out of you again. And I yelled at my fucking computer when that one happened. Really? Yeah. I don't I, like that one. I didn't expect it at all. The director didn't like it either. It was the studio's idea to put it in. And he actually had final say in the cut. And he could have removed it. And he, and he could have vetoed the whole idea. And he decided to keep it because earlier they used things to diffuse the situation. Yeah. from the grim dark reality of what you had just seen and you had just saw a really like dark brutal ending like the the good guys did not win you just saw the family <laughs> get axe murdered and he's like you know what you guys will the way i took it is basically he thought the studio was wanting to put in a cheap jump scare and to him he's like people are going to kind of laugh at that one after it scares them and he's diffused the situation of the creepy fucking axe murder you just saw yeah so if that was the intention, and honestly, it fits the rest of the film, it, it did its job. Yeah. But that one scared the shit out of me. <laughs> I was literally grabbing my mouse to hit stop because I was watching it on Netflix on my computer. I did not want to watch this one on the TV and the kids walk in, right? Yeah, yeah. So I was watching it on Netflix, and, and you got to think, I got headphones on so the kids can't hear it. And I got a loud pumping in the headphones. And I reach for the mouse, and I, and I go to press stop on Netflix and Boogie just jumps into the fucking screen walls leaned in scared shit. Out okay. Of now that's different. That's an experience. <laughs> I do want to point out though, that I, I think that each time Ellison found the projector on at night, I think the ghost kid set it up and Ashley was watching it. That was a theory I had and I had never seen the sequel. And then I watched the sequel and that basically confirmed it yeah. for me. But I think that's what was happening is Ashley was seeing the footage and then sneaking away before daddy would catch her. Right. That makes sense. And this explains all the running around that Ellison would hear associated with the footage. And we know that he couldn't see the kids until that one attic scene when they wanted him to see him. Right. Yeah. And only the daughter could. So all of that kind of clicks for me. Yeah. Yeah. I can go with that. Speaking of the sequel, it's now time for Josh to tell us about 2015's sinister two. Yeah. The movie where they took everything that worked in the first film and threw it out the window. So, uh, with sinister two, we still have Blumhouse. We still have a script written by Scott Derrickson and C. Robert Cargill. And we have a new director, though. Scott Derrickson directed the first one, right? Yes. He had to leave to go do Doctor Strange. <laughs> it's not like he just buggered out. He wanted to be part. He wanted to be the director on this. And that was the original plan. That makes a lot of sense. That's, that's actually cool. I was wondering why he left a project that he had started and still wrote it. But that makes sense. He had a fucking Marvel movie to go make, right? <laughs> So this time around, we've got uh, the director, Kieran Foy, who he had done uh, a film called Citadel, and that's what they had seen, and that's what ended up getting him this project. But uh, he also directed Eli, and that's 2019, I think. It's fairly new. Have you seen that shit? I have not. It's a Netflix film, and I'm told it's really good. I just haven't had time to see it yet. Yeah, yeah. I won't spoil anything for you, but it's it, you You need to see it. It's it's okay. it so up your alley, and I liked it too, so like the bonus points but uh in this one we of course we've still got well not still got we now have ex-deputy so-and-so still being played by uh james ransone and we get a new main character a couple main characters we get shannon uh Sossaman as courtney collins and i recognize her from wayward pines oh for me it's always a knight's tale in the order the new show the order the movie with heath ledger that i am cut that is one of my religious horror movies okay i <sighs> I don't think I've seen that. We've also got Robert Daniel Sloan as Dylan 
and D'Artagnan Sloan is Zach. They're the twin boys, not identical, but they're also twin brothers in real life. So that kind of worked out. Didn't know they were real brothers, twins, or idiots. <laughs> and he, he, he's not in the movie much, but John Beasley is in there as Father Rodriguez. And he's in a, been in a bunch of shit, so I got to throw him in there. And, of course, a new batch of creepy snuff filmmaking kids. So we open up seeing uh, an updated snuff film because the plan was let's go 16 millimeter this time around, which ended up being bounced back and forth and some of it digital and then made to look like it. They didn't really hold true to what they did in the first movie. It's quite a shame. And you can tell. Yep. But we see three people tied to crosses in a cornfield with bags over their heads. And we see a POV shot of a small hand light one of them on fire, lighting up a trail of gasoline that goes up it. And then we see a wide shot of all three of them on fire. Then we get a quick cut to Dylan waking up from this nightmare that we were just seeing. And then things get worse for Dylan as he sees Mr. Boogie peeking out of his closet. And then things get worse for the audience as we see a shitty jump scare shot of ghost Dylan popping up next to Dylan in bed. And I'm sorry, but it's poorly composited. The eye line is not mm-hmm. correct. It's mm-hmm. just bad. I'm going to try not to shit on this movie, but there's a lot of bad in this movie. <laughs> yeah, it, it's not as good as the first. And uh, I, I like the jump scares, honestly, in the first one. And these these do feel cheaper. Yeah. So that opening right there is your setup. Welcome to Sinister 2. Title card. So next we see ex-deputy so-and-so going to his first confession and uh, <laughs> he's crazy ass nervous and it's real funny because it's like, you, you don't know what you're doing here. It's like, well, I've never really confessed before and there's so much more comedy with him they could have played into in this one and if they had went that route, I know they, they it's in the commentary, they thought it would have been cheap and cheesy and hammy, but it may have saved the film because he's, he what's her face is good he's a too. funny guy yeah, he's naturally does it man but uh and i mean like the what they call the cohen brother scenes in the first yeah. one, like it really kind of worked and played into it right exactly different director though so no but he asked the priest if he believes in evil like real evil because he thinks he's found it and uh he wants to know how to stop it what do you want me to say you should carry a cross and holy water and shout the power of christ compels you But uh, the priest just warns him to stay away from it. So-and-so says that he feels like it's going to happen again. So we already know that, like, the events of the first movie are still stuck with this man. We've quickly set that up. We then see Courtney and her boys, Dylan and Zach, at the grocery store. And she quickly notices uh, this this guy that I guess she recognizes him because she gets spooked by him real quick. And the dude in the credits, uh, he's the creeper. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I saw that. Um, And she quickly reminds the boys of what to do when she says her code word. And uh, they remember the code word and it's rutabaga. And she ends up saying it and bolts because she goes to the end of an aisle and like a lady's coming around the corner and her cart hits hers. And she's like, that's it. I've had enough. We're bailing. And uh, as they're running out, the security guard goes to stop her and he's like, what's going on here? And she's smart. She throws the fucking car keys past him to the, to the boys because they're already by the door. And I was like, I love that. This man just touched one of my boys <laughs> and then just goes walking out <laughs> like that's going to work. But uh, as they drive off, we see that man on the phone saying, yeah, it's her. All right. So, hmm, somebody must be looking for her. Once they get home, we see that Dylan is shook up, like bad shook up, 
And he also doesn't like mom's furniture studio out back. And the furniture studio out back is there's a damn church behind this house, which is actually a converted barn. They just added the windows and they built the the upper part of the front of the barn. And then the steeple in every shot is CGI. I didn't realize that until it was divulged in the commentary. So maybe that's where the 10, huh. that's where the $10 million went. Cause I believe that's what they spent on this movie. And I just, anyways, moving on. <laughs> it's a creepy looking um derelict church though oh yeah yeah the whole fucking the the house and the the church and everything feels like texas chainsaw like it really does we do get a nice wide shot of this property which fades into black and white and then pulls out and we realize that it's a photo hanging on the cork board with all the red string that so-and-so's in front of on the phone asking about a vacant property and he's posing like he's a real estate agent and he's like oh yeah 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 my clients know about the incident it's still vacant oh wonderful (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so this is leading somewhere. And if you'll notice in that scene, I'm pretty sure it's in that scene. You also see another house that was destroyed by arson. Interesting. It's not just another house. It's the Oswald. House. Does it say it in that news clipping? It either says the Oswald family or you can, you can tell by the picture. I just, I knew I saw it. I was like, Oh yeah. <laughs> so back at the church studio, which is the furniture restoration studio of moms. That's what she does. She's, she's restoring antique furniture. Dylan goes out there while she's working to uh, fetch her for dinner. And when he walks in, he can see all these pools of blood in the middle of the the sanctuary floor. Cause there's like all the pews are like pushed to the side. There's only a few left and she's like got a couple of tables set up and shit. So it's not like a full setup sanctuary. Unfortunately, it's CGI blood and we know how I feel about CGI blood. Yeah. It's also poorly done CGI blood, but it lets us know that Dylan's seeing some shit that freaks him out and mom doesn't notice it. She just hears clanking sounds from chamber pots that they have in this church. And I don't know why there's all these chamber pots in this church, but, and I'm sure that's not what they are. I just don't know what they are, but they'll, since we recently did the lighthouse, all I can imagine is somebody peeing or pooping in them. That's, that's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they're supposed to be like the donation things that get passed around. Well, there's a separate bag for that when it does that, that film. So I, and it shows them, oh, yeah. and it shows them sitting up there when they're doing communion, but they're not, they don't do anything with them. I don't, I stick on weird shit, but anyways, <laughs> the, the clanking of the pots will be important later. <laughs> oh, so that night, Isaac, I mean, Milo comes to Dylan's room and takes him into the basement to show him something. And for anybody who doesn't know why I said Isaac, that's that's a children of the corn reference. And we'll get to that. Um, but it's Milo. And we don't know at this point what or who Milo is. Is he a local kid or what? Because he looks a little old worldly. But uh, he takes him down to the basement. He opens up this trunk that has a projector and records in it. And this trunk is can supposedly be seen in Insidious 3. That it's the same trunk that is spotted in the further towards the end of Insidious 3. I have not had a chance to double check this, but according to the director on the commentary, it's in there. Oh, Insidious 3. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was like, it's not a Sinister 3. (laughs) So Ted pops up, which is this other kid, with a real labeled fishing trip. So we watch Ted's snuff film. And while we're watching it, we notice that there's records in the trunk that get played on the projector because... Part of what worked in the first movie was just hearing that projector running and witnessing these silent films of fucked up shit. And now we have a stupid fucking score that goes over each one of them in this movie. I don't like it at all. I don't know why they did it. It really makes me angry because there definitely was a score during the snuff films in the in the first movie. And I didn't know if the movies were silent. Was the was the music playing with the eight millimeter footage? Is it something that just 
myself as the viewer could hear. I didn't care. It just worked. And it needed to stay that way. Having these records play was just dumb. Yep. But uh, in this film, we get to see a family drink the reagent and the family get strung up over water and then hanging upside down. And we see a gator go by giving away what's fixing to happen. So there's no real shock. And (laughs) a gator pops out of the water and starts going Lake Placid on these, this family. And I'm, I'll just hang on this one and I won't do it for the rest of them. But just in what I just said, the difference between the first movie and this movie is they could have just shown the family hanging out, skip the drinking part. Don't make it so prominent and show the family hanging there. Leave you enough time to wonder what the fuck you're supposed to be looking for. And then just have the gator pop out of the water and get one. That would have been creepier, but they, they, they spoon feed it and it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. They do spoon feed it, and the CGI is not very good with the alligators popping out. But I will say, I like, whoa, shit, when that one happened. It's a fucking great kill. Yeah, I was like, oh, they're going to dunk them in the water. They're going to do the drowned thing again. <laughs> <laughs> and then you see the fucking gator come out. And I was like, holy fucking shit. That was, uh, that was pretty creative, actually. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it was not done as well as the originals. But Dylan runs to his room terrified. And the next day, Kmart Ash Williams shows up to the house and burns it to the ground, just like one of the houses we saw on the board, the end. Okay, so that's not what happens. But And I make the Kmart Ash Williams joke because parts of this movie, when I was watching it with the wife, and I'm like, if we ever had to hand the reins over to someone, I could almost see this guy play Ash. I almost <laughs> could. You know what I mean? Doesn't have the chin. Yeah. But he just that weird, awkward, fumbling buffoon. But wait a second. I have to do it. <laughs> but the hero who saves no one, you know? <laughs> At any rate. So this isn't what happens. Instead, he steps on a squeaky toy and his cover's blown and Zach yells at his mom and she comes running out and she starts going on about how he's not taking them and who sent him there and how much money did they pay you and all this shit. And he's just looking at her like, what the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. This house is supposed to be fucking empty. (laughs) Cause you know, he does say that he's a private investigator. So she thinks he's in cahoots with the grocery man. The creeper from earlier. And uh, she then asked, how much will it take to get him to say that he never saw them? Coffee. It's been a really long trip. And I think that there has been a huge misunderstanding. And his delivery is just, oh, it's, it, he's so good. I like him as the star. Like I said, he's usually the, the buddy character. And it's really nice to see him as the star. Oh, absolutely. So once inside, he brings up the Oswald case and says that he's there because of what happened in the church. Actually, she asks, oh, are you here because of what happened in the church? Like, oh, okay. So something happened in the church. Dylan can see what happened in the church. We're, we're continuing on here. We got the whole house and moving thing happening again, obviously. And um, Courtney explains that basically she's been hiding out with temporary custody of the kids. But uh, he agrees to come back tomorrow to take a look around because he definitely doesn't want to go look around that church at night. And he heads back to his hotel and he's sitting there in front of his laptop and his laptop just goes bonkers. And we get news clippings and the symbol and all kinds of crazy shit. And then the laptop eventually just goes out and we get images of Milo and Mr. Boogie. And then his laptop just cuts off and we get a cheap jump scare as Boogie's symbol appears and there's a stinger and... And he turns back around, he slams the laptop shut. It's just subtlety, y'all, subtlety. Where's the subtlety in this one? So that night, Dylan has another nightmare. Only this time, he ends up sleepwalking down into the basement. And like as he rounds the banister, once he's downstairs, Mr. Boogie's standing there down at the end of the hall, like kind of watching over him to make sure he goes into the basement is what it feels like. 
And he goes down there and this girl, Emma, brings out another film for them to watch. And the ghost kids tell him that the movies make the nightmares go away. Like, oh, okay, because Dylan doesn't want to do this. He's he's the good kid, which we'll get to. So this time they watch Christmas Morning, and that's the one that was supposed to be, was shot for and supposed to be in the first movie, but ended up not being used. And this one looks better. So in this one, the family is buried alive in the snow. And it's it's pretty brief. I mean, we just we see the family drink the stuff in Christmas morning, and then it cuts outside in the snow. And like there's a shot where it's like the mom, and it's like, God, that's a mannequin face, and it just looks so bad. And then the eyes cut at you, and it's like so unsettling. <laughs> and it works. And they're just frozen. Honestly, I think the reason why that one is so much more fucked up is the only one where you directly see kids dying in it. Yeah. This is true. Because you see the kids freezing to death on the ground as well. Yep. So the next day, Zach tells Dylan that he's not so special because he can see the ghost kids too because there's a quick shot of uh, Dylan seeing the ghost kids outside and Zach comes up behind him at the door. He's like, I can see him too. You're not so special. And they go outside and uh, he also ends up hitting him in the arm and calling him a pussy. And I didn't notice this until watching it with the director's commentary. Zach is dressed in red for the entire movie. And Dylan is dressed in blue for the entire movie. Okay. So-and-so is dressed in blue for the entire movie. And when we meet Clint later on, he's dressed in red for the entire movie. Okay. And it's trying to show us the two different characters of the kids. And later on, we'll get into where I'm more like dad. I'm more like mom. That gets said. But the, the little note of wardrobe there didn't catch it till it was pointed out. And shit like that is genius. I love stuff like that in movies. Yeah. Yeah. But at any rate, So-and-so shows up because he's coming back that day to look around in the church. And while he's going over the crime scene photos, because he's like walking around the sanctuary and like holding up this picture. And we finally actually see more of what Dylan was probably seeing. And it's five bodies, five or six bodies laid out kind of in a circle. And you can't really tell what's going on. We'll find out later. Don't worry. They're supposed to be laid out in a pentagram, which I think is kind of odd because... I mean, a pentagram is the sign of Lucifer, which would have nothing to do with Bagram. Yeah, yeah. We're really mixing up mythologies at that point. <laughs> and that's where you get, like, a different director working on somebody's script. And I'm sure, like, when they shot the first one, Cargill was on set almost the whole time with Derrickson. Yeah. I bet neither one of them were present when this was being made, if they were in the middle of making Doctor Strange for, for Marvel. Exactly. And based on the, the releases, they had to have been in pre-production already. That's, that's, they couldn't have been there. Um, but as he's looking at the photos and doing a comparison to then and now, we hear this clanking going on again. And he hears it as well. And it leads him to down this hallway into a rat under a pot. That's foreshadowing. And uh, <laughs> there, uh, this isn't how it was going to go. Originally, he was going to go all the way up to uh, the steeple and have a ball of rats fall on his head. And there's actually a name for it when rats nest together and their tails get tangled. I forget what it's called. And that was going to fall on him and spook him and blah, blah, blah. But they, they already had run out of money. So they just did the rat under the pot. Okay. The cool thing that happens here, though, is he starts seeing the ghost kids. It's only when he takes his flashlight away and they're like in silhouette and it's like, what's that? And then when he shines his light on it, it's gone. And then he takes the flashlight away. There's more of them and they're closer. And then he takes the flashlight up and they're gone. He takes the flashlight away and there's more and they're even closer. And then boom, Mr. Boogie appears right in front of him. That part was cool. I did really like how they did that. So Boogie scares him so bad that he flies through this wall and he hits the ground and pulls out his inhaler. 
That's really where my brain went on this scene because of it chapter two, but he pulls out his cell phone and once he shines the light where Boogie was, Boogie's gone and he starts looking around the room and there's the symbol on the wall. And just then he gets a call from quote unquote, the new professor Jonas, because that's what this guy even introduces himself as on the phone. Yes. And uh, I got his name in here. I think it's Stomberg, but he says that Jonas uh, is missing, but he left something behind and he needs to show it to him. So as he goes to leave the, uh, the property, he kind of sits down and has this bonding moment with Dylan. But as he's coming up on Dylan, Dylan's trying to shoot this spider with a slingshot. And I don't mean he's missing. I mean, he doesn't have it in him to kill the spider. Now, this was originally going to be a scene called Stupid Bird, which was shot where he's shooting cans with a slingshot and then a bird lands on the fence where the cans were. And the ghost kids are there agging him on to shoot the bird. And Zach walks up, takes the slingshot from him and says, it's just a stupid bird, shoots the bird with a slingshot, walks over to the now injured flopping around bird and jumps up and down on it yelling while mom watches this from the window. And that's supposed to give you much more insight into the kind-hearted one versus the, oh my God, this kid's cheese has already slid off his cracker. I would have liked that a whole lot better than we got there. And it's a stomach-turning scene. It's in the deleted scenes on the DVD, but it 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 makes the movie so much darker. Yeah, I agree with you. They should have kept it. But um, we do get so-and-so having a bonding moment with him, and they kind of talk, and you know, it, it's like he's filling it out and trying to trying to buddy up with him. When all of a sudden, fuckhead Clint rolls up with his cop buddies to take the kids. And this literally scares the piss out of Dylan. I mean, he's standing there pissing his pants. And I'm, this is a real good scene. This whole scene right here is really yeah. good. But ex-deputy so-and-so calls their bluff because he knows they can't do it without the sheriff. And I was like, really? You're going to try to disguise a kidnapping as a, as a custody transfer? And, uh, you know, some time ago I was picked up by somebody, you know, under false pretense and uh, made the papers and everything. And uh, if that were to happen again, it'd be everywhere. And, man, I'd hate to be the uniform that made that call. You know, he's like <laughs> like Johnny on the spot, man, because he's, he's been a cop. He, he knows how to get, get into his head. And the, and the guy turns around to Clint and he's like, we're, we got to go man and Clint's like what the fuck man my kids he's like I got kids too (laughs) (laughs) perfect response and that's the thing like any of the dialogue scenes and and atmospheric scenes are so well directed and 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 made in this movie really it's the trying to link it to the first one we have problems right yeah that that and a a hit hit and miss as you're going through because it's like one scene's like yeah and then you go to the next scene it's like what happened so after this shaking up the whole family courtney asked so and so to stay for dinner and uh then she asked him to stay the night on the couch And he doesn't want to, but he agrees to once Dylan asks him to stay for the night because they're all fucking scared. This is understandable. Like, we don't know how bad dad is, but apparently he's got friends in high places. And usually people like that go mad with power and they're assholes. And somebody raised Zach. We haven't seen how fucking crazy he is. But if we had, we may maybe we would have been more scared, too. But at any rate. So later that night, we get another jump scare while so-and-so is looking at a picture from the church. And I don't like this one because he's like looking with a magnifying glass at the picture. And he's like, oh, is that is that Mr. Boogie? And Mr. Boogie comes out of the picture a little bit like, oh, it's Mr. Boogie. It's cheap. I don't like it. Um, what I find more interesting is in that shot, if you'll notice the staircase behind him, the the void under the staircase where Dylan keeps going down to the hatch to go to the basement is in a big triangle that looks just like one of Boogie's eyes. And that and the the railing on the stairs, they they set that shot up intentionally to try to make you feel oh. like Boogie is watching. Had they done more of that and less jump scares and made it a little bit more obvious, 
and maybe after a second watch, I'll appreciate it more. But that that would have been more terrifying. Like I feel like like Nightmare on Elm Street when it's done right. Like there's this this evil power around the whole time controlling things. But at any rate, after he gets the jump scare, Courtney pops up and she's unable to sleep as well. They go out on the porch and they're sharing a drink and she's having a secret cigarette and they real quick go to playful, nervous teenager type feeling vibes talking where it's like, oh, sex scenes coming up. Cool. Um, Like it it really goes to that. (laughs) But then they move over to the swing set and they bring up, you know. Like you can do so much in life and and what's left behind. And he's like, well, kids, like they do this whole play on the legacy thing from the first movie, only it's her trying to explain it and not finding the right words and him being the right kind of a man to know exactly where she's coming from. Or he's just that dumb honesty of like, you know, like, oh, kids are your legacy. And, uh. So it paints this real picture that if you're you're contrasting the two that, you know, he's a good father figure. And that's what we're setting up because he's got to fight the evil later on. She even brings up that uh, father of the year beat Dylan so bad that he ended up in the hospital. But his police buddies didn't say anything because there's a I don't know if it's happened yet, but so and so actually goes online and looks him up and he's like a big to do in the town yeah. and all this kind of shit. He's like a agricultural tycoon or something. Yeah. So like all the farms and everything in this town probably rely on him for everything, right? Exactly. But while all this is going on, Dylan goes down to watch another movie because the kids are telling him that watching the movies make the nightmares go away. So now we're going to watch a film called Kitchen Remodel. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, the more you when you go into these, I'm like, man, these are fucked up snuff films. They're just not filmed as creepy as the other ones were. Yeah, stylistically, they're off the mark. But uh, but th- yeah, this is <laughs> fucked up shit right here. This is why I don't work with electricity. In this one, during the remodel, we see that there's exposed wiring coming out of the walls, and they drink the poison and the kid floods the kitchen and they're all tied up there and he's got insulated boots on and takes one of the wires and jams it into the water and fries their asses. So of course Dylan runs off again, but this time Zach goes to the basement and uh, he's pissed that the ghost kids didn't pick him. And he kind of has it out with Milo and uh, it's like, you know, He's weak and stupid. And, you know, I'm, I'm, and they're like, no, we picked him because he's smart. And he's like, I'm smarter than him. Like, he's really, really mad that, like, he's been chosen for this over him. And so we're just setting up some more of that. So uh, we go back upstairs and mom almost gets laid, but she doesn't. But they do exchange numbers. And uh, that, it's a really good scene because they kiss and then they don't take it any further and a lot of times in movies you see and even in this one you see it coming from a mile away and it feels bad and in this one it feels natural it it <laughs> actually feels real in this movie it does <laughs> so the next morning after exchanging numbers so and so heads off to Stomberg's to find out what Jonas had left behind and what it is is it's a recording from a mystery shortwave radio broadcast and it's Norwegian in this movie, and this is taken from the number stations, which have been used in a lot of shit, most recently uh, Project Blue Book. Okay. And it was used in something else. I could go down a whole conspiracy theory rabbit hole with this, but they're one-time pads, and they're codes used to this day. And you got a pad with the encryption and a pad with the decryption, and you do – it's all math-based, and you add – 
to one end to create the numbers to send the message, and then you subtract at the other end. But it's a one-time pad where you just randomly write numbers and letters. So as long as somebody has the encryption and the decryption, it can never be broken unless the, the actual pad is intercepted. That's not from the behind the scenes. That's just from my own digging. I'm like, holy shit, I didn't get any of that from watching the movie. I'm, I'm glad you specified that. Yeah, I just want to point that out. So it starts off as one of those transmissions with the, uh, a kid saying the numbers, and then all of a sudden we actually hear it go into a murder that you hear because somebody finally recorded this when they heard it because it doesn't broadcast all the time. And uh, Stomberg explains that the numbers were coordinates and that Jonas found the, the house and it was in Norway and this murder had happened. And not only that, but he figured out the pattern and it's the pattern of the family moves out of the previous murder house to become the next victims. Holy shit. It's all coming together. And he also goes into a little bit more backstory about quote unquote, the boogeyman and how he's been represented all these different times, all these different ways throughout the ages, but it's all the same thing. And uh, something else that Jonas had figured out is that it's the art, the, the essence of the evil is captured through art because in this one, the girl was playing the piano and she's in Norwegian. She's like, shh, Bugul can't hear me playing mommy. And you know, like, so it puts together that whole thing. Oh, wow. It's not just paintings. Now it's music. It's anything. Oh my God. The <laughs> arts are the devil. That's it's weak sauce. <laughs> I thought, I thought they tiptoed around it enough in the first one to let us figure out the rest on our own and, and see it how we wanted to see it. I liked it being just the imagery in the first yeah. one. But based on all this, they all conclude by all, I mean, so-and-so Stomberg and Jonas that what does Bagul get out of this? Bagul gets the kids. So he's the eater of the children. But it does give us the setup for the radio to kick on playing back what they just said. He gets the kids. He gets the kids. You should probably destroy that thing. But we abruptly cut back to the house with Zach beating the crap out of Dylan. And not only is he is he beating him, he's like, say you're weak. Say I'm better than you. Say I'm better than you. Like he's trying to win over the ghost kids. And the ghost kids show up and they side with Dylan. And Zach's even more pissed off. And he's like, I hate you. I hate all of you. And he goes running off. And as the kids walk away, they plant the seed. You should do something about him and your father. Mother. And I love that shot with it being, you know, each kid walking by saying one of the lines like it's so it's so high school. <laughs> but you know, you yeah, know what I yeah. mean? <laughs> but it's good. Exactly. So we cut to inside the house and <laughs> Dylan's got like a bag of peas or something on his head. <laughs> his mom's holding on him and uh, she confronts Zach about, you know, beating the crap out of his brother. And Zach channels his father, Clint, and apologizes. Fuck you, Dylan. Fuck you, too. Cunt. I don't condone violence against children, but he might have to get his ass beat for that one. He's talking like a grown man at that point, right? <laughs> well, yeah, a grown asshole. But he, he does get sent to bed without dinner. <laughs> Jesus, come on. Really? <laughs> I know, right? <sighs> so that night, Dylan has another nightmare. But in this one, he finds himself in a red shirt. And this is kind of the tell. And he's in the cornfield. And he's holding a hand sickle. And that's not a popsicle made from a human hand. I mean, a handheld sickle, like the little one, not a big old scythe. Would this be a farm implement? Yes. <laughs> I would like to say it's the preferred weapon of Leslie Vernon as well. Yes. Good call. But speaking of corn and sickles, so all over the Internet, it says that the film pays homage to Children of the Corn. 
And the director on the commentary says, no, that's neat that it happened that way, but that was not the intentions at all. The script was written for the farm to grow wheat and for Clint to be the big aggro guy with wheat, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. And due to scheduling, when they filmed, wheat wasn't in season and they had to settle on corn and they just kind of went with it. So I think that's why Milo is dressed the way Milo is, because it's like, fuck it, we got to go children of the corn style at this point. So uh, <laughs> Dylan now gets to watch Milo's movie, Sunday Service. And in Sunday service, Milo ties down some churchgoers face up. And this one's weird because it's not a family. If you pay attention, there's three women in, in the group that's tied down. So I, maybe it's mom and two aunts. I don't know. But it's it seems like we're venturing off into other territory at this point. We've gone family, missing child, family, missing child. And this was just like, fuck it, man. I'm just going to grab some parishioners and go for it. Um, right, right. But at any rate. This is so bad. So Milo has them tied down and Mr. Boogie shows up and summons his rat army onto their stomachs. Hate that shot. Is he fucking Dracula? (laughs) He's uh, you can survive on rats. (laughs) Oh, rats and stray dogs. But it's so fucking cheesy when you see it. It is, man. And uh, so the rats all hop up on everybody's stomachs where these pots that we were seeing earlier gets strapped down on top of them and he puts hot coals on top of the pots and the rats got to go somewhere. So they claw and gnaw their way out. And this is a legit old school torture method that I'm pretty sure that the mob and drug lords still use to this day. Jesus. Yeah. That's another reason kids why I don't do drugs. (laughs) Yes. That's a very good reason. So after this, it's like 13 ghosts, man. There's still one more movie. And uh, he's got to watch one more because once he watches all of them, the nightmares go away forever. But Dylan refuses to watch the last movie and uh, he takes off for the church. Instead of running to bed, he runs all the way out to the church for some reason this time. And he runs straight into Mr. Boogie. And you'll notice that he falls down on the ground and he it goes into slow-mo and he does this weird crawling backwards and then turn and run away thing. The director straight up says this was an homage to Terminator two and Sarah Connor. (laughs) And when she's in the wife beater, he's in the wife beaters like, Oh my God, he's so right. He totally ripped off that shot. He's like, yes, I did. And that I did it on purpose. At this point, why the fuck not? Exactly. We're, we're that far in, man. It's the, the, we got to. I'm surrounded by assholes. Well, that's what happens to Dylan because he runs right into the ghost kids. And uh, this time, he fi- you know, they're like, you got to watch the last movie. You got to watch the last movie. And he finally stands up to Milo and he says he doesn't want to watch his movies anymore and he's not going to. And, the, and Milo's like, well, that's OK. They weren't really meant for you anyway. Then he gives the most rigid line delivery in the history of cinema when he says you did what we needed you to do it's supposed to be so amazing when it gets that line and it is delivered craptastically i'm sorry kid but it's craptastic he was already an asshole so what was his brother doing to to make him more of an asshole and ready to kill people because i think he was there (laughs) he was little Dahmer already i know right but we're fixing to make that turn Because as Dylan makes his way back to the house, he hears the projector down in the basement and he goes down and discovers Zach watching the last film, which is a trip to the dentist. Zach straight up pimp slaps Dylan. (laughs) 
<laughs> he just turns around. Says, Lord God, my pimp hand knocks him the fuck to the ground and he heads off to bed. The next morning, number one dad arrives, this time with the sheriff and papers, and he's going to take the kids for real this time. And he tells Courtney she can come along, too. And he's a manipulative son of a bitch, and he knows that she will come along because that's her only way to try to protect the boys. This guy's... Exactly. Man, I hate this guy. I forget his name, but like, I don't know if I can watch him in another movie, even as a good guy, because I was be like, <laughs> I hate you, dude. <laughs> exactly. But uh, so they all go. And remember, we left so-and-so off with finding out about the Norwegian blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. So since they've all headed off, so-and-so shows up later that night to an empty house. And he texts Courtney. Good thing they exchanged numbers earlier. Um, But we cut to the the Clint's house, or their old house, whatever, as Clint's coming out of the bathroom and just snatches the phone off the table as he walks by. And he's, like, talking to the kids and texting while he sits down and sets the phone back down. And we go back to so-and-so and sees that, you know, don't ever contact her again, signed her fucking husband. Or something similar to that. Right, right. And it's the terror at this table is fucking insane. Cause remember she said earlier in the film, the kids and her were not allowed to eat until he had taken the first bite. Yep. The Clint always ate first. Yeah. And the table set and they have their food and he has to go drop his nightly deuce. Right. And you have to sit there and smell this delicious meatloaf that Courtney's made. I don't know what's on the table, but it's, <laughs> it's meatloaf from my vision right now. Gotcha. And, and you got to you got to wait on him to drop his deuce and come back, and then you're allowed to eat. Nope. And it's just to show like what kind of a dick he is. Yeah, a complete dick. Now the good thing here, at least, is that this is told so and so where they are. But uh, Clint sits down and he's telling Dylan to eat, and Dylan's saying that he's really not hungry, and he just freaks out and grabs the mashed potatoes and starts shoving them in his face and Courtney starts screaming at him to stop and it's like the most believable fucking thing in the whole movie is when she's yelling at him and it's disturbing like it goes into this other place like like real horror (laughs) you know what I mean it's so disturbing because it's so realistically depicts like domestic abuse and those kind of relationships better than movies I've seen that are supposed to be a true story of that. Yeah. But, uh, there is a cut post dinner scene, um, of where Clint is actually dolling Courtney up before sex, which makes it even more disturbing. I'm actually glad they cut that, but that's exactly what's going on when so-and-so knocks at the door, which is going to make the end of the scene make even more sense. I didn't even know that was a deleted scene. Cause I watched this on Netflix and, uh, the first movie had an issue of being one movie and turning into another. <laughs> and this movie was dangerously close to being like a, a traditional horror movie turning into like a domestic abuse oh, yeah. film. And honestly, maybe they should have kept that then. <laughs> Just fucking go full hook, line and sinker, right? Yeah, the drama of this movie is more interesting than the horror. That's it, it is. It's yeah. I just said that <laughs> that's, that's even more fucked up. Yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Clint answers the door, shotgun in hand. <laughs> and so-and-so is trying to be so sincere. He's like, you're in danger. And Clint's like, I'm in danger? Say that again. I'm in danger. <laughs> Starts beating his ass yes. all the way down to his truck. And he tells him that if he ever tries to contact Courtney again, first he's going to take it out on her and then blow his fucking head off. Now, piss off so I can go fuck my wife. What a piece of shit. Anyways, I know, I know it's disturbing, man. They should have really anyways, 
What what might have been? There's so many good, so much good stuff floating around here. It just didn't come together. We say that with almost every horror sequel ever made. No, no. I don't know if you realize that yet. Oh, yeah. In 45 episodes. So that's what happens. <laughs> so the next day, the big day, as fucktard father said that they were going to be having, they're having a picnic while Zach sets up the camera to film from the corn. Does that make him he who walks behind the rose in this situation? Sure. <laughs> But Zach walks into the frame and he's preparing their drinks. So we know what's fixed to happen here. But while he's doing this, Dylan manages to get to his mom's phone and sneak a text to so-and-so. And he's like, please help or help us. Something like that. And we cut to that night and Zach has the family set up on crosses. And at least we get a little bit of behind the scenes of he's, he's, he's in the truck and using the truck to winch up the crosses. So it's like, okay, that's how someone that small does that pass the pyramids man think of the pyramids <laughs> it was child slave labor <laughs> aliens oh that makes much more sense so zach torches dad first so no loss there <laughs> good to see him out of the picture that was a great service to humanity hey i see what you did there and he goes to light up Dylan next, but just as he does, so-and-so slams into him with his fucking truck. He, sh- yes. he should have been going faster, but anyways, and so-and-so manages to free Dylan and Courtney and Zach comes to and chases him towards the house with the hand sickle and ends up chopping off a few of so-and-so's digits in the process. So uh, let's hope that's not his writing hand. You're right. It's a very confusing chase scene. We don't actually know what the fuck's going on because you got the jittery camera, the different angles. It's so dark. And you're like, did he just lose a hand or arm? You you actually don't know what the fuck's going on. I actually like that chasing. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because Zach is filming with the Bolex at at this point. So that is how we're seeing most of this. And they're running through the corn. So it's very disorienting. So once in the house, so-and-so hides mom and Dylan in a tub upstairs, but we quickly see that all the the ghost kids are there and they're helping out and they're ghost kids. So they can like walk through fucking walls and, and see shit and everything. So they're fucked. Right. But as Zach goes for the tub, Emma is totally friggin' confused because Emma was pointing out, Hey, they're in the tub. She's totally confused when they're missing from the tub, but they did the old switcheroo and they got out and they're standing behind the door. Things kind of fall apart here. <laughs> um, the kids are throwing shit everywhere and it's just dumb in my opinion and they managed to pin so-and-so behind a desk and throw a bag of golf clubs at his head that looks terrible and um we have mom and dylan pinned down in the living room as shit's flying everywhere and zach goes in there with the camera about to finish him off and -and so-and-so comes running in with one of those golf clubs and bashes the camera not Zach. This was smart. So now I can't finish the film. And Zach's like pulling the reels apart, screaming in the floor. No, no. And he goes running back to the trunk. He's like, please let there be another camera. Please let there be another camera. And there's not. So with no way to complete the film, Zach is fucked. And Mr. Boogie appears and he gives Zach the touch of death on his shoulder and he disintegrates. That was Jason Blum's idea. Cause this wasn't going to happen. And the rest of the family actually witness him disintegrating, turning into a skeleton, like, um, Indiana Jones three and shit. And they're watching <laughs> it from a projector on a sheet somewhere else in the house. And as he disintegrates, the sheet bursts into flames in turn, the house bursts into flames and they all run outside as the shit burns to the ground. So, so-and-so drives off with his new family. <laughs> 
he stops at the hotel to gather his things. And as he's in there packing his stuff up, we hear this burst of static and he spins around and there's that fucking radio from Stomberg's. And it starts saying like they had said in the room when they were quote unquote figuring it out. He gets the kids. He gets the kids. He gets the kids. And then we hear a small girl's voice go, deputy, deputy. And then the cheesiest Mr. Boogie lean in that we could ever have happens. Credits. So presumably everybody dies. I don't know. The, the, the fam is sitting out in the car. I don't, I don't know. And, and I don't care at this point because so-and-so must be dead now. And I liked so-and-so and now I don't have a so-and-so. Um, I agree with you. <laughs> like we need so-and-so to carry the franchise. And uh, I'm going to say no balls right there because we watched Ethan Hawke and his family die. Totally. And if we follow Randy's rules for Scream, the sequel should be bigger, badder, and bloodier, right? And and why do we get this ambiguous ending? And it can't even tie in to a third sequel. No. Because we don't have anything to connect it, right? Yeah. Well, here's what was going to connect it, and it was going to be Blumhouse, because Jason Blum, shortly after the movie came out, said in an interview that the next idea was to do an insidious, sinister crossover. Don't get me into going, I mean, we could have Bagul be in the further, and like one of the, it, there's, there's a lot of ways this could happen, but what really could have happened in this film that can't, that didn't happen, that could still happen, is we could go the prequel angle. I would be okay with that. Give me more of the backstory. Solidify the backstory. Get it. Get it on the rails. Um, make it darker. Make it. Make it scarier. Make it older. We need to pull these numbers up because this movie made good money, but nothing compared to the return on investment that the first one made. So that was kind of the, they wrote themselves into a corner, and it fizzles out at the end. So there really was nowhere else to go, and it it was really sad because. Yeah, being when I saw the first movie and when it came out, it was kind of a breath of fresh air. It felt a little different. It it sucked me in. It wasn't my bread and butter, but it made me feel something different. And like you said in the first one, where we've got the daughter, I'm going to go back a little bit here. The the daughter being ignored by dad, kind of being the seed of that evil for her to be the kid in that movie that or, or the kid in that family to kill the rest of the family. In this one, them pitting the brothers against each other to build up. So much rage in Zach for him to be ready to kill. That angle is fine. The way they yeah. the way they told the story for it was all over the place. One thing I did want to point out plot wise that I, I didn't quite catch you say is deputy so-and-so burned down the the Oswald house. Oh shit. With the film footage in there. Yeah, he admits it when so, he's talking to Stomberg. I totally left that out. So when he burned it down, he destroyed all the footage, which killed that connection. So it had to start again, right? But I don't understand where these other kids were able to do it unless Boogie can can be doing this all over the place, which is possible. He's supposed to be like a deity, right? And he just works through imagery, so maybe he can. Another thing I wanna I wanna bring up when the projector is shown and heard and that shot that's revisited of him turning the projector off over and over again, the projector feels like a character in the first movie. It's got the right amount yes. of tension, the right amount of time on screen. And in the second one, they're like, they Michael Bay that shit and they show it too much yes. and they add the record player. And it's, it's, there was a neat little charm to the first movie that, that came out of nowhere and, and you couldn't say, Oh, this is just like blah, blah, blah. And I'm sure someone will correct me, but to me it, it didn't. And this one swing and a miss, but 
I like I like Deputy So and So. I like what's his nuts that plays him, and I want to see him do comedy horror, like balls out comedy horror. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to see that. I liked the movie in its own way, and honestly, we've seen some shitty horror sequels in our day, right? Like horror sequels are not necessarily a good thing. Yeah, and and this was not the worst one I've seen. No, I, but I think it, it. I think I'm so mad about it because all the good elements were there. Everything, everything right. for this to work was there. It just didn't. There's a disconnect. I honestly feel that Derrickson and Cargill wrote it just like they wrote the first one, and it was going to play off the same way. Like all of these scenes that are out of place, and then you had a different guy directing the scene there at the end. I can kind of see that where it was like, oh no, we did that in the first one. We have to take it, take it up a notch, and they took it in the wrong direction. Whereas the original director, if he would have been the one doing it, he would have just probably done it the same way with a different story and it would have worked better. Yeah. And honestly, it's kind of funny because it's the opposite that we see things. Usually it's like, oh, the writer fucked the director. <laughs> and this one, I feel like it might have been the other way around. And then this is one of the few times where the du- the original director was going to do the sequel. And I don't know, like it just. Well, and another thing, and I hate to rag on the guy, because like I said, Eli's a really good movie and it's a well-directed movie. There's a lot of things in this movie where it feels like you watch a scene play out and it's like, that was the rehearsal scene. Where's, where's the keeper take? You know what I mean? Like, he was just like, it's in the can. Yeah. Let's move on. And that seems to be the approach of the whole movie. Like, oh, and let's crank it up to 11. Anyways. <laughs> and, you know, like, I'm sure different directors and different writers work together better than others, right? Yeah. yeah I can't I can't hang it all on him. Just something. It was is one of them off the mark things. Well, that's it for the Sinister episode. So you guys are going to have to tune in on the next episode when we cover director Fidi Alvarez. You are all going to die tonight. But as usual, guys, thanks for downloading the show and spread the word. Please do not forget to rate and review us online. And please, please send us comments, questions, and suggestions to our email, sbyspodcast at gmail.com. We would also love it if you could follow our Twitter and Instagram, both at sbyspodcast. This might motivate us to use them more. See you guys on the next one. Thanks for listening. Tell anyone of this, and he'll take you first, then kill your whole family.